Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. The House of Representatives, which at this moment has no sworn members, is convening again at this hour to cast a fourth vote for Speaker of the House. None of the members of the House of Representatives can be sworn in until a Speaker is elected. So right now, even folks who've served in Congress for years and years and years are representative-elect. They are not actually sworn members of Congress. The Washington Post reports that Kevin McCarthy, the majority leader who lost three separate votes yesterday, may try a different strategy today that doesn't rely on getting 218 votes, which is a majority of the House 434 number. There's one member uh, who is ill and not able to attend. So right now you need 218 votes to become Speaker of the House, but instead uh, they may try a strategy today where some of the McCarthy supporters might vote present or not vote at all for McCarthy, uh, allowing the number of votes needed to win to be lower than 218. So that's a possible strategy. The House just uh, started convening today uh, to try to figure this out. There are those who think that this could take several days. Folks just don't know what's going to happen. This is very uncharted territory, uh, as you likely have heard by now. Uh, it's been since 1923 that Congress has taken more than one vote to elect a speaker, the House of Representatives. Uh, before that, uh, it was pre-Civil War. It was in the 1850s. Uh, and there was one time where it took several months and some 133 separate ballots before they finally settled on a speaker. So we will have continuing coverage of the vote for speaker this afternoon on Here and Now and on All Things Considered. So stay tuned to WIPR. We had hoped today to speak with Mayor Brandon Scott, the mayor of Baltimore. He comes by once a month for our Midday with the Mayor segment. We are not able to do that. We heard just a few minutes ago, uh, five or so minutes ago, that there has evidently been a shooting at the Edmondson Shopping Center uh, over uh, near Route 40 here on the west side of Baltimore, and the mayor uh, is uh, attending to that. So I guess he'll be giving a press conference uh, perhaps with uh, Police Commissioner Michael Harrison uh, at the Edmondson Shopping Center uh, concerning that shooting. We certainly would have spoken to him about violence in Baltimore, but now we'll have a few minutes to speak with you. So, midday listeners, we are more than happy to hear from you today uh, to have you weigh in on uh, what's in the news. Have you uh, thought about what this means for the Republican Party, the fact that the uh, Kevin McCarthy saga is dragging out as long as it is? What do you think about the uh, crime statistics as we finish 2022, another year with more than 300 shootings in our city, 333. It's actually a few, This is these are homicides, it's a few fewer than in uh, the past couple of years. The non-fatal shooting number, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, um, considerably improved. Uh, 40 fewer people were shot and injured uh, this year in 2022 than in 2021. So give us a call. Let me know what you think. 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday wipr. So when it comes to violent crime in the city of Baltimore, again, 
Uh, The 2022 homicide total, 333. It's the eighth year in a row that we've had more than 300 people shot to death or killed uh, as uh, victims of homicide in our city. That number isn't exactly the number of people who actually were victims of homicide this year. That number includes people who were uh, perhaps injured in uh, events that happened prior to 2022. But the medical examiner determined their death, which occurred in the year 2022, to have been a consequence of that injury. Therefore, uh, it is classified as a homicide. So in terms of the actual number of people uh, who died uh, by homicide in Baltimore, it's actually a little bit less than 333. It's still an outrageous and horrific number. Uh, We have so many people, uh, the Baltimore Peace Movement, uh, which used to be called uh, Baltimore Ceasefire, and many others working to to stem that tide and to turn things around. Uh, It's really, really, uh, and it it, it seems to be a very intractable intractable problem. Um, And, you know, it's just difficult to know what law enforcement uh, can do differently. It's difficult to know what uh, the courts can be doing differently. I mean, a lot of people th- say, oh, well, this is, it's, it's simple, that we should just uh, throw folks in jail, the judges are too lenient, the, the police aren't arresting enough people. Um, let me share with you some statistics about that kind of thing. Before I do that, let's go to a caller. Barry is on the line in Baltimore. Hey, Barry, welcome to Midday. How you doing? Happy New Year, and I'm doing really well. Happy New Year um, to you. Something that's always stuck in my mind that I just can't get a, a definitive answer to when I ask the mayor or ask the police officer, is it the, 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 the violence in Baltimore, is it stemming from a drug-related issues like gangs fighting over territory and turf, simply because the opioid problem hasn't gone uh, away? It's still a major underground uh, uh, drug, drug vehicle, So, and Baltimore has always been a major heroin conduit. So is some of the violence because of that, or how much of it is just random people just shooting each other? Like, should I be afraid when I'm going to the supermarket of just getting shot um, if I don't have anything to do with any illegal activity? Well, you know, it's a fair question, Barry, and there's a lot of people that have that very question on their mind every time they leave their house. And, of course, uh, some neighborhoods, uh, you're more uh, likely to, uh, you know, encounter violence than uh, in other neighborhoods. As I understand it, it's about 50 percent of the violence that we uh, experience in our city on the streets that are related to uh, drugs, uh, to gangs, and to, as you say, the, the territorial disputes. And the other half of the disputes are individual gripes. These are individual beefs that people have with other individuals, and they are disrespected in some way. They are dissed in some way. Uh, Someone does something to a family member uh, that either hurts them or shows them disrespect, and they feel that the best solution, the best response to that occurrence uh, is violence and most likely gun violence. So uh, it's it's not all gang-related by any means. It's about half, as I understand it. Now, 
the mayor uh, would point out and the police commissioner and the folks at Monsey, the mayor's office of neighborhood safety and engagement, um, that this, this past year, 2022, uh, there was a big increase in arrests for gun possession. They seized more than 2,600 weapons. Uh, that includes 477 ghost guns. These are the things that you can basically build uh, with a kit that you get in the mail. Uh, they are impossible to trace. They don't have serial numbers. Uh, they are a big, big problem. And the number of ghost guns has gone up exponentially uh, in Baltimore and around the country. They are seizing a lot more ghost guns now than they ever did in the past. Um, there was, as I mentioned, a, a decrease in non-fatal shootings. Part of that has to do with advances in medicine. There are people who are being shot who in years prior uh, would have died from their injuries, but the folks at places like Shock Trauma and the other great medical institutions that we have here in, in the city are able to save them because they're just better at it. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, your question is a is a good one and a real one. You know, should I be afraid? And um, it's an interesting one to ponder. Um, I, my answer to that personally is no. I, I don't think we should count on violence by any means, although we should certainly know that there are an awful lot of people, including the 300-plus families th just this past year, uh, who've encountered violence. So uh, it, it's a it's a uh, it's a valid question. And it's it's something I mean, what do you think, Barry, about the capacity of a mayor, the capacity of a state's attorney who was just uh, Ivan Bates was just sworn in as state's attorney yesterday in his official ceremony. Um, for example, he has uh, made a determination to end a policy that the former state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, had in place, uh, which started during the COVID crisis and continued when the COVID crisis uh, attenuated a little bit. And that is, uh, he is going to uh, reinstate uh, the uh, policy of arresting people for uh, the so-called low-level crimes, crimes like prostitution or loitering, that sort of thing. What do you think of that decision by uh, the new state's attorney, Ivan Bates? And what do you think about the capacity that a person holding that office or any of the other leadership positions in Baltimore have to actually reduce crime? I think that they're very smart people and that they know some very easy answers. I think for the most part, they're unwilling to do those things simply because they, a lot of them are just protecting their political status. For instance, if the drug trafficking trade is so big in Baltimore City, we know that billions of dollars aren't uh, on the south side of Baltimore or, 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 uh, or, or the west side, for instance. That money is coming in from out of the county. That money is coming in from other places. People are coming in to buy drugs in Baltimore City simply because it's easy or it's, 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 it's the place to go. Just put up the cameras to take pictures of the, of the cars that are streaming in to Baltimore every Friday night. Everybody knows this is going to happen. Every Friday night, take pictures of the cars in the heavy drug uh, uh, neighborhoods and just mail the folks a letter. Your car was seen in this area of, of, uh, of Baltimore City. That's a high drug area. Just to let you know, there's a major crime going down there, and we know you were down there. You could have a good reason for being down there, but at least we know that you know 
that we know you were down there. Yeah, so, that's it's a, simple stuff. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Barry. I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it is it, it is uh, uh, true that in the pilot program in the Western District, which had the highest rate of uh, crime and a highest rate of homicides and non-fatal shootings in the city prior to last year when they initiated this group violence reduction strategy, the GVRS. And the, the, the key word in that strategy, group violence reduction strategy, is the first one, group, because uh, it has uh, been shown through the folks who study this kind of thing. There's a guy named uh, Anthony Braga uh, at the University of Pennsylvania who's involved, who's a uh, uh, advising the city of Baltimore. Um, he's at the Crime and Justice Policy Lab uh, at Penn. It has been uh, shown w- with the data that Dr. Braga and others have uh, put together that no one um, who is in, or very few people involved in violent activity, shooting other people, uh, do so without the knowledge or at least without the encouragement in some way or the, the involvement in some tangential way of another person. So what they're trying to do with this group violence reduction strategy is uh, identify the circle of people who are surrounding those folks who are making uh, these who who are are committing these violent acts and surrounding those people who are potentially victims of these violent acts. Um, they had 71 people in the Western District who were connected with services like life coaching, uh, employment, job training, uh, housing assistance. Um, there was a uh, an article in the Baltimore Sun by Shantae Jackson, an essay that, that she wrote. She is the head of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, so she's the one in charge of implementing this GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy. Um, she had a piece in the Baltimore Sun a few weeks ago, where she told the story of a grandmother uh, who was um, uh, housing uh, a young man who was very, uh, very much uh, likely to be targeted by people who wanted to see him dead. They moved the son and the grandmother out of her house, and they got her away from that particular location, which was where she was known to be. Uh, and they moved her away until things calmed down, and she and her grandson uh, could go uh, back and, and, and be in a safer environment. So they're doing that kind of stuff. It's not all policing. They're doing that kind of stuff. They're helping folks get jobs. They're helping folks uh, with counseling uh, about employment and about mental health issues. So they're they're trying to do things uh, from not just a law enforcement perspective, but from a, uh, a sort of, as the mayor calls it, a holistic perspective. And they are now going to try to expand that pilot program, which did have a pretty good result, some 30 plus percent reduction in the amount of crime uh, in the Western District. They're not going to, they're now going to uh, extend it to the southwestern district. It's midday. Would love to hear from you on your thoughts about crime in Baltimore. Perhaps you want to talk about Kevin McCarthy and his uh, saga trying to become elected Speaker of the House. 410-662-8780. Our email midday at wypr.org. And you can tweet us at midday wypr. Let's go to Stacy, who's on the line in Baltimore. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, Related to the previous question, um, so Ivan Bates said in his swearing in yesterday that he would wants to enforce all laws on the books in Baltimore. But my question is, does Baltimore have the police staffing to do that? And if 
police start cracking down on some of these low-level nuisance crimes that happen right in front of their noses, like the parade of dirt bikes and sometimes graffiti and other things that happen, would that take away from their ability to intervene on more serious crimes? Well, thanks for that question, Stacey, and it's interesting because this is exactly the justification that Marilyn Mosby uh, and Michael Harrison, the police commissioner, used to justify the decision to not prosecute uh, crimes, the so, sort of the, the so-called low-level crimes, uh, like prostitution, like uh, d- possession of small amounts of uh, drugs, um, and they uh, say that they were trying to help those folks get into counseling, get into uh, therapy instead of incarceration. Um, and when it comes to you know, do we have the person power in the police department? Um, if you uh, take the word of the Fraternal Order of Police, a guy named Mike Mancuso is the head uh, of the Baltimore chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police. He says that it's impossible that they don't have enough officers who can do this. They have to be specially trained. They have to, in, in terms of uh, having officers who are available for the group violence reduction strategy. Um, he says it's not possible. The folks at Monsey say it is. The folks at uh, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement say uh, that this, number one, is proven to be the best strategy for reducing violence. And number two, uh, it can be scaled up. They are confident that it could be scaled up. It's obviously being done gradually. They're not trying to do it citywide. They're trying to do it one district at a time. So they've done it in the Western District. They will continue it there. They're going to now move it to the Southwestern District as well. So it's a fair question as to whether or not uh, if, if police are involved in these lower level crimes, would they be distracted from their work on the higher level crimes? Um, and I think there's just, you know, uh, reasonable people are disagreeing about it. Certainly Ivan Bates seems to uh, disagree with Marilyn Mosby when it comes to that particular uh, that particular point. Um, I understand that Jane Miller, our good friend, a former investigative reporter with WBAL Television, is on the line. Jane, welcome. Good to talk to you. Happy New Year. Hey, Tom, I try to listen to you as much as I can. And when I heard you, you kind of on a spot, I thought, you know what? We can, you want to talk about violent crime? It's obviously a worthy conversation. Um, you know, we did just finish another year with a awful number in the number of homicides. There's something that I've been thinking about because I've been around for so long um, and have covered the violent crime situation for my, you know, most of my career here. You know, if you look back, we've had two times since 1990 where we've had consecutive years of homicides above 300. One was the entire decades of the 1990s. Two was the past eight years uh, since the death of Freddie Gray in 2015. And those two periods of time, do they have anything in common? Um, And that's a good question. Yeah. I've actually been looking at what went on in between those two, thinking about what went on in between those two episodes. So we get to 2000 and the aughts, and what did we have? We had zero tolerance. I mean, we had arrests in the, you know, 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, above 90,000 a year. That started to subside, and then what we had to follow was the very aggressive policing of first what was called the violent crime, VCID, VCID, whatever you want to call it, 
um, different task force, and then, of course, the gun trace task force, all of those kind of, you know, same iteration of very aggressive policing, and the Department of Justice found it to be unconstitutional. So my point is, is that a correlation, a causation, and it's a very sobering thought. If, in order to get our homicides down below 300, we have to resort to that type of policing. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point, and uh, we just have a couple of minutes left here, but um, uh, we should note that the arrest uh, rate, the number of arrests, were up in Baltimore in 2022 for the first time in more than 10 years. So uh, there A little been bit, a, that's a, right. There was know. a slight, in- and but most of them were misdemeanor arrests. Right. But, you know, the mayor has said we're not going to be able to arrest our way out of this problem. We are not going to be able to. This is not a policing problem uh, as uh, solely a policing problem. We need a holistic report uh, approach. Um, and, of course, we've got uh, Mike Mancuso of the Federal Order or the Fraternal Order of Police saying this nonsense that you cannot arrest your way out of this problem is ridiculous. So there are people who just simply have a completely different take on it. So, Jane, I appreciate the call. We are out of time. Uh, we're going to move on, but uh, thank you, Happy and we will, you. we will see you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Jane Miller, our good friend from WBAL Television. She retired just last August. Coming up, Midday Theater critic Jay Wynn Russick will speak with D.T. Max. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he's got a new book, which is a collection of interviews with the great Stephen Sondheim. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR.